Okay, first steps, lessons from Acts, the first response. We did the first message last week, uh, and today we're going to look at the response to that first message, the first response, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41. Um, so turn, turn over to that, and, and like I uh, told you last week, um, Scripture is going to be up on the screen, uh, but, and, and it would be easy to just rely on that, but it's not always up there. So turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41, so you can have it right there in front of you, either on your phone or some, there's some red and blue, we used to call them pew Bibles, uh, chair Bibles sitting around, so you might be able to find one of those if you don't have your Bible with you. Um, in our series, we're talking about the first steps uh, taken by the apostles of Jesus um, and the first Christians that began to follow Jesus in the early days, weeks, months, and years after Jesus ascended to be back with his Father in heaven. He handed off the, uh, the mission to the apostles. He went back to be with his Father, uh, and now we're watching the apostles take those first steps uh, of establishing the church. Uh, we're talking about the early church established, again, by the apostles of Jesus and those who immediately followed the apostles. As we said last week, the, the most accurate copy of, of something is one that's based on the original copy, right? Uh, copies of copies of copies usually end up being distorted, crooked, unreadable, even corrupt sometimes, depending on what you're talking about. Uh, it's, that's just the nature of copying. Uh, the, the farther you get from the original, the less it looks like the original. If you want a crisp, accurate, legible copy, uh, you use the original as the model. That's true in copying documents. It's true in copying photographs, back when we used to have real pictures with film. Um, it, it's true in producing something like a period movie where you're seeking to depict a particular time in history, uh, like a World War II era movie. You, you, if you want to get all the clothing and the uniforms uh, and the scenery, the way people talk, the attitudes people had, the politics of the day, uh, you're going to base, base what you do on 1940s era Things, photographs and testimony, film, books. Uh, you, you want the movie to be accurate and believable. Don't base it on what people think it should be uh, or, or vaguely remember their, their, their great-grandmother talking about, uh, but, but go back to the original and model it after the original. When it comes to our walk with God and the establishment and purpose of His church, our goal here at Stony Brook is to, to the best of our ability, and we'll never be perfect at it, but to the best of our ability, seek to be like those first Christians. Seek to establish this congregation to be like the church established by the apostles of Jesus. Now, the story of those first Christians and those first congregations is found in the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, Acts is short for the Acts of the Apostle or Apostles. Uh, it's really mostly about the Apostle Paul, but there's a little bit about some of the other apostles in there too, especially at the beginning. Um, Acts is often referred to as the New Testament history book uh, because it describes the history of the church from the very beginning that we're talking about today through the first several decades of its existence. 
And so far, we've considered the first message. The first ever gospel message was given by the Apostle Peter during a Jewish feast called Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. Armed with the power of the Holy Spirit, who had given Peter and the other 11 uh, uh, apostles of Jesus this miraculous power to speak languages that they had never studied before, uh, there were languages of the people that were gathered there from the ends of the earth, from Europe around to North Africa, um, being able to speak their local language miraculously, Peter presented, and we assume that the others translated what Peter said, Peter presented a message that was particularly compelling to this Jewish audience. He quoted familiar scripture from their, from their law, from the Old Testament, uh, that prophesied of Jesus' coming, uh, his death, his resurrection. He and the other 11 gave eyewitness testimony. We saw Jesus alive after he had died. We're eyewitnesses. He ended his message with this statement, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. A, a combination of elements uh, was at play here as Peter sought to persuade people to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God, the messengers of God, and the Word of God. The Spirit of God, the messengers of God, and the Word of God. Those three elements persuaded this group to accept Jesus those three elements are still available today. We all have the Holy Spirit if we're a follower of Jesus. We all can be and should be and are called to be messengers of God. And we all have the Word of God, which is the guidance that we need to help people know Jesus. The first message couldn't have been more successful. <laughs> uh, listen to the reaction of the crowd that day. It was a crowd numbering in the thousands. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, this message caused them, it says, to be cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Now, cut to the heart is a Greek phrase that basically means to experience acute emotional distress, implying both concern and regret, to be greatly troubled. Now, in his message, Peter had accused them, uh, the Jewish people that were there, uh, really all Jewish people, uh, the nation of Israel, of causing Jesus' death. And it was true, they had. The Jewish leaders had falsely accused, uh, arrested Jesus on trumped-up charges, accused him of blasphemy, turned him over to the Romans, where the people, many of the Jewish people, uh, called out for Jesus to be crucified, crucify him, crucify him, which is exactly what happened. He was crucified. In part, Pilate turned him over to the, to the soldiers to be flogged because the people were, were crying out, crucify him. Through using scripture, Peter had helped them to see that they were responsible for putting to death their prophesied Messiah. 
Could you see how, how they then reacted the way that they did with this emotional distress, with this concern and regret? What? We killed the Son of God? <laughs> Peter, what do we need to do about that? We killed the Son of God. What do we need to do about that? Turn ourselves in? <laughs> Mourn and sackcloth and ashes? for a period of time, fast and pray for a week and hope that God won't strike us down for killing his son, follow the law better, be a better Jew, offer more sacrifices at the temple, give more money to the poor. Peter, what do we need to do? They had no clue and perhaps feared the worst. These people understood that they had sinned against God. By rejecting his son and putting him to death. Now, they, they were sorry they, they had done that, but what do we do about it? They believed he was the son of God. What do we do about it? They were convinced by Peter and the Spirit and Scripture that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was the son of God. He was their Messiah. He was their Lord. Peter had convinced them of that. They believed the first message. Now what? Now what? So Peter gave them the answer. And it was simple and to the point. Verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Now Peter didn't say perhaps what they were expecting him to say when they said, what do we do about it? Peter didn't say, well, just obey the law better. Uh, just, you know, stop lying, stop stealing, stop, give more money to the poor. Uh, be more faithful to your spouse. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. You know, just obey the law better. Come on, guys. No, Peter didn't tell them to obey the law better. Peter didn't tell them to seek to win God's favor by sinning less. That wasn't going to, going to help them at all. It wasn't going to save them at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul addressed this very idea in more detail when he wrote to the young church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. He wrote, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. You know, Paul makes it clear uh, there in Ephesians that our salvation depends on two things and two things only. God's grace and our faith. Following the law, being a good person can't save you. We can never go to God and boast and say, well, God, what, have you noticed how good I've been lately? Yeah, have you noticed how well I've followed the law, if you were back in those days? H haven't I been good enough lately to be saved? Don't all my good deeds outweigh my bad? And the answer, of course, is always no. No, we can never be good enough and that's why we need Jesus. 
He was good enough. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And then he offered that perfect sinless life as a sacrifice for us on the cross for our sins. So that when we place our faith in him, the one who was good enough, by God's grace, he gives us the gift of salvation. Peter could see that these people had decided to put their faith in Jesus to be their Lord and Messiah. Now they just needed to understand how their faith and God's grace come together. When does that happen? When does God's grace and our faith come together? At what moment does God's grace and our faith come together where God saves us? Peter's about to tell them. First, Peter tells them to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a decision to turn. Simply as that. A decision to turn. A decision to turn from living a life of sin, living a life of pleasing self, and turning towards God and living for Him. Living your life the way He wants you to live it. It's simply saying, I'm not going to live this way anymore. God, to the best of my ability, I'm going to live your way from now on. So if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, first you've got to decide to turn. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and keep living the way you've been living. Uh, Living for self, tolerating, tolerating sin in your life. No, you must decide to turn. And that doesn't mean that you'll be expected to be perfect. Uh, And never sin again, because that's impossible. (laughs) That's impossible. Uh, And God knows that's impossible, that we can't be perfect. He's not calling us to be perfect. Repentance is just simply a decision to no longer accept or tolerate sin in your life. And so that even if we slip and fall, and we all do and we all will, repentance means you get up, you ask God for forgiveness, you turn back to God, and you start over again. Every time, every time. Repentance is a decision to no longer tolerate sin in your life and dedicate yourself to serving God the way he wants you to to live. Peter told them that their response to Jesus must first be repentance. Faith in Jesus starts with repentance. And then Peter tells them the second thing that they need to do, be baptized. Be baptized. The word baptism is the first century, uh, in the first century, it literally meant to just be plunged in water. That's what the word meant, to be plunged in water. When Peter called them to be baptized that day, he wasn't using a fancy church word that referred to some ritual, religious ritual. It would become that later. But uh, when, when Peter called them to be baptized, it was just simply a Greek word that meant to be plunged in water. The the baptisms that immediately followed Peter's message, that we'll talk about in a minute, the first baptisms were immersion, to be plunged in water. Their whole body was immersed into a body of water. Now, through the centuries, many people began to use other modes of baptism, uh, sprinkling, pouring a small amount of water on on your head, uh, on a person's head. Uh, And no doubt that these methods were done for what seemed like good reasons, I'm sure. Um, I mean, just sprinkling a few drops on your head is a lot easier. It's a whole lot less messy. 
you don't have to change your clothes. Your, your hair's not all messed up. I mean, it's, it's, it's real simple to do. You don't have to install a, a huge baptistry in your facility. You don't have to go down to the river or to a swimming pool. All you need is just a little small basin with a little small amount of water uh, in it, and you're good to go. So maybe that made sense uh, when, when Christians began to practice sprinkling and pouring as a mode of baptism. But as we look back at those first Christians in the book of Acts, we see that the method of baptism taught by the apostles was immersion, the immersion of a person's body in water. And if you consider the reason that Peter and the other apostles called the people to be uh, immersed in water, it makes sense. Later uh, in the New Testament, baptism is, is described as a burial. Uh, and of course, a, a burial is greatly is, 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 is depicted nicely in, as you take a person's body and you bury them in the water and then you lift them up as they resurrect out of the water. And it's sort of a... Um, uh, a, a, an imitation of what Jesus did. He would die, he was buried, and he rose from the grave. And we do the same thing in our baptism. Immersion depicts that very well. It's also d- called a washing. P- uh, the Apostle Paul is told by Cornelius, you know, what are you waiting for? Uh, go be baptized and have your sins washed away. And, and so a washing of, of the whole body where, where the water is not washing the sins away, but but your whole self is being washed. That, that's depicted uh, well with immersion. Baptism is depicted as being clothed with Christ. And so we put on Christ that covers our whole body. Immersion uh, depicts being clothed very nicely, which is why uh, baptism immersion is used. Uh, by those first Christians. Those first believers were immersed, and, and, and that's why we immerse here at Stony Brook, uh, because we want to be like those first Christians uh, and, uh, and, and, and follow their example. So why did Peter call these people to be baptized on this day? Let's read it again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now remember the passage from Paul that we just talked about a few minutes ago. We are saved by God's grace through our faith. But when exactly does salvation happen? At what moment of my belief in Jesus can I say, okay, I'm saved now? You know, at what moment of my belief can I say, this is the moment, this is the moment. You know, human nature says, hey, we need a moment. We need a moment where we can say, that's when it happened. (laughs) I I know, that's when it happened. And Peter is telling them, this is the moment. Baptism is the moment that God chose to bring his grace and our faith together together where our sins are forgiven. It's not a work that we're doing to try to win God's favor or earn our salvation, like like Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. Paul was talking about our attempts to win his favor by doing good things, by following the law, by doing good things. And we can never be good enough to be saved. Baptism is not something we're doing to try to earn God's favor. Baptism isn't an attempt to win God's favor. It's simply 
doing what Jesus and here the Apostle Peter and later the Apostle Paul and, uh, and people like Philip called for people to do when they asked, what must I do? What must I do? Baptism is the time and the place that God chose to bring His grace and our faith together. And the result is the forgiveness of our sins. When we come up out of that water of baptism, we can know my sins are forgiven. (laughs) We're saved. God just forgave my sins through my faith that I put in Him. Not because the water magically washed our sins away. No, God washed them away when we met Him there with our faith in that place, in that moment, in the name of Jesus. Now, many have rejected baptism as being a part of our salvation process um, because they see it as a work, something you do. This basically started with the Reformation movement or the Protestant movement and, and Martin Luther. Um, in other words, we're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by God's grace, period. And, and many have taken baptism out of the process of becoming a Christian. It, it's something you do, uh, so it can't be a part of the salvation process. So it's really just a symbolic act only that you do sometime later after you become a Christian. But here's the thing. We still need a moment. Even if we take baptism out of the salvation process and just make it a symbolic thing you do later, we still need a moment, don't we? We still need a moment and a time where we can say, that's when it happened. That's when it happened. So when baptism was rejected by many as that moment, because it's doing something, it was replaced with a prayer, sometimes called the sinner's prayer, which is also doing something. <laughs> the sinner's prayer is, is, uh, is, is, is a beautiful prayer. It's, uh, uh, there's not an official sinner's prayer that we can go to and find. Um, but if someone was to come uh, and say, hey, what must I do? I believe that Jesus I want to, is my Savior. I want to put my faith in Him. Uh, you might be told, well, well, just say this prayer with me. And, and the prayer goes something like, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I understand that I cannot be saved by myself. I cannot save myself. My only hope is your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for me. And I understand that. And so by faith, I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. Amen. That's a sinner's prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that all of us should say because it's true. We, we are lost without Jesus, and only through him can we be saved. So it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, and for many, that's the moment. Oh, if, you, if, if, if you say this prayer and you mean it in your heart, you're a Christian. That's the time and the place when you know, now I'm saved. Now, those who practice the sinner's prayer as the moment and those who practice baptism as the moment, now, while while they are things that you do, they are not done to win God's favor and earn salvation. 
No, they're seen as simply the time and the place where God's grace and our faith come together. But if we go back and look at the original copy, those first Christians, and we observe what they did, when that first audience heard the message, the first gospel message of Jesus, and when they were cut to the heart and they believed that Jesus was indeed their Lord and their Messiah, and when they asked, what must I do? Peter didn't tell them, repent and say a prayer. He called them to repent and be baptized. And if they did that, they, he said, you will receive from God the forgiveness of your sins. They weren't going to be punished for what they did to Jesus. No, they would be saved by Jesus from, the ver from that very sin and any other sin that they would have committed. It's because of that original copy, the example of those first Christians, that when you come to believe in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and you were to make Him your Savior, and you were to come to me and say, Mark, what must I do? I'm going to tell you the same thing Peter told those first Christians. You need to repent. You need to decide to turn from your sin and turn to God. Turn from living for self and start living for God. Repent. And you need to be baptized. And when you come up out of that water, I know and you know, God applied his grace with your faith and forgave your sins. I know that because that's what Peter said would happen. And not only did you receive the forgiveness of your sins, but Peter tells them that they also will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. You know, that very same Spirit that was poured out on the twelve, uh, miraculously giving them the, the ability to speak these languages that they had never studied, at your baptism, that very same Spirit comes and lives in you. The very same one. The Spirit will, not, will no longer be just for special people, like prophets, the prophets of old. But the Spirit will be for everyone. As he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, from, from you and this audience to your children, your children's children, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will receive the Spirit. He's for everyone now. And no doubt as these people grew in their faith and they learned more from the apostles, we'll talk about that next week, first practices as, as the apostles began to teach them, they discovered what having the Holy Spirit meant. It, they discovered the power, the gifts, the guidance that the Holy Spirit would give them. In verse 40 and 41, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What a response. What a response. 3,000 people responded to this first message. 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus, made him the Lord and Savior of their life. Throughout the city, there were, it's known in Jerusalem, there were many pools and fountains around the city. I can only imagine them spreading out and and the, first, the apostles began baptizing people, and then they, they literally instructed others probably, hey, help out, you, you, you who have just been baptized, you start helping to baptize as well. Uh, and they, they baptized, and baptisms multiplied until 3,000 people were soaking wet. 
and feeling relieved that they were, no, they were not going to be punished for killing Jesus, but that Jesus had actually saved them. The twelve were doing as Jesus instructed them to do. They were running the play. They persuaded 3,000 people to follow Jesus, to become his disciples. They were baptized. And now it's time to teach them. And that's the next first step we'll talk about. First response next week or next time. So I might say to you, what is your response to Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never proclaimed Jesus as your Savior, what is your response to him? Facebook, if you're watching, you're someone who maybe you believe in Jesus, but you've never really made him your Lord and Savior. God's grace and your faith have never really come together for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, you need to do that. You need to do that. And we can do that today, just like they did on that day. They baptized 3,000 people that day. We could baptize you today. Do you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? God's waiting to forgive your sins. Come forward today. We've got water right back here. Um, and robes and towels and everything you'll need uh, to make that happen. Facebook, same thing. You can't come forward today, but you could, you could talk to me later and we can arrange something as soon as possible um, uh, for you as well. So what is your response if you don't know Jesus as your Savior? I hope that you'll respond the way those first Christians did. And here's a really easy thing to do when you're ready to answer a friend who might come to you and say, Mark, what, what do I need to do? How, how do I be saved? How, how am I saved through Jesus? Well, take them to the book of Acts. That's easy enough to remember. Just take them to the book of Acts and show them those first Christians becoming Christians. Uh, go through the, the, the first message and, and show them how Peter persuaded them to believe that Jesus was their Savior. Uh, and then show them his answer to their question. Uh, give them the same answer that Peter gave them, uh, those who placed their faith in Jesus. Real simple. I mean, there's other stuff you can learn, but if you want a, just a, a, quick, a quick method or place to go, just take them to that first message and that first response in Acts chapter 2. Just model the original copy. And you can't go wrong. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this very first day of the church and this very first message, this very first response. Lord, I thank you for um, Peter and the apostles' boldness to stand before this crowd and for you guiding them to help them see and understand who Jesus was. And Lord, what a great day that was. 3,000 people. Uh, had their sins forgiven that day. And then it just built from there. Thousands and thousands and thousands came after them. Uh, Lord, today we continue that practice today of sharing the gospel of Jesus to people. And, and when they come to believe it and they're ready to accept you as their Savior, uh, to, to tell them and, and instruct them to do the same thing, to just repent, turn, start following God now and be baptized. Uh, and, and today, just as 2,000 years ago, today we still receive the forgiveness of our sins and then dwell in the Holy Spirit to give us guidance and strength. Thank you, Father, for that continuing message, and may we 
continue to share it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.